Thank you, Kathy. That, um, the only problem with that, it sure does make it hard to preach, all right? <laughs> Take your Bibles and uh, find in a reliable piece of paper and ink the Word of God, <laughs> or a good tablet, maybe won't let you down. This has been an incredible time. Uh, we have been looking at the occasions when Jesus appeared after the death and resurrection. There are ten of them, and of those uh, three, we don't have a lot of information. Uh, it just simply says he appeared to Peter, he appeared to James, he appeared to 500. But the rest of them have a common denominator, and each and every time is surprise and faith. Uh, the people or the group, they were a person or the group, they were surprised that suddenly Jesus was there. And then whatever he did, whatever he said, whatever he engaged them to do, bolstered their faith, gave them a reason and ability to go and do the next thing. We looked at Mary and the other women as they uh, saw Jesus at uh, the tomb. Then we looked at Cleopas and the other disciples who were on the road to Emmaus and how Jesus appeared to them. And then twice now, we've been looking at the upper room, one when Thomas wasn't there and one when Thomas was. The next of these appearances is where we are today in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John. So if you'll be turning there if you have not already. I, I want to show you uh, a picture or a couple of pictures from our travels uh, of where this place is and what it's like. Guys, will you throw the first one up, if you will, where <laughs> we get things to work where they behave? Nope, not that one. Uh, one thing outside. There it is. This is called Peter's Primacy. And this is a church that's built on the northern uh, side of the Sea of Galilee. And you notice this black stone. This is volcanic stone that's found on the northern part uh, of Israel, especially around the Sea of Galilee. And this, notice the rocks there at the bottom. This, this church is literally built on this rock, out of this rock. And so it actually is the foundation of the church. Now to go to the one that's inside, if you will, guys. And it's actually, nope, not that one. Uh, that, nope, not that one. That one, okay. <laughs> this, the rock, actually, this is the rock it's built on. It is the altar. The, the rock of, that, that is the foundation of the building itself. They built the building around it and built the building around where this is, uh, the altar right here. Now, uh, as you saw in the first picture, there's, there's a lot of beach area there. Almost all the time, there's a lot of beach area there. And uh, it's been unusual just this year, after decades and decades of drought, uh, they've had a lot of water. And so look at the next picture that you throw up here, guys. Uh, you'll see a little more water there in a minute. There you go. See, this was taken by our friend Micah Bulibda. You know, he is a guide. Many of you have known him, and he's really great. Look how the water has all the way gone up, and it's, it's actually all, all the way to the courtyard. First time in decades we've had that much rain in the Holy Land. So that's a blessing. That's a blessing. But this also gives you an idea that from about where the picture ends right here is about 100 yards out from the shore. That's where the guys were in the boat when Jesus was on the shore right there where the the church is there now, and this whole thing took place. I thought sometimes it's nice just to get a visual reference as to what we're talking about right here. So, uh, first thought I want you to have as you look at these passages that Derek read to us this morning. 
The first thought I want you to have is this. You've got to trust Christ as your Savior. Don't ever take one passage of Scripture and divorce it from another one. The 21st chapter of John is built on the 20th chapter of John. So where do we end up in the 20th chapter of John? It was with Thomas's testimony. Remember Jesus appeared in the upper room and the most phenomenal confession of faith that we have anywhere in the Bible came right there where Thomas just said, my Lord and my God. And upon that profession of faith, then, then the very next chapter begins. So let me just say, I say that's important because this is where it always has to start, folks. You always have to start and end in your spiritual life having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay? You've got to be where Thomas is. You've got to come to that place in your life that you likewise cry out and say, my Lord and my God. How does that happen? You and I have to realize that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal, everlasting life. Now, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before time began, knew that their precious creation of mankind was going to fall. And they provided a means by which mankind could be redeemed. In the fullness of time, God, the Son, became a man, Jesus Christ. He lived within the law. He lived a perfect, holy life. Then he gave his life to die on the cross, to take my sins and yours upon himself. And he rose again three days later so that you and I might have his eternal life. And by confessing our sins to him, turning our lives from our way of doing things to His, and letting Him be my Lord and my God. We're saved. We become a part of the family of God. We are transformed so radically that Jesus gave it a whole different phrase. He said, you're born again. Paul would say, you're a new creation. Absolutely. And so that's where things start. So we've got to begin by being reminded where we were in chapter 20 and that we have to begin our journey of faith each and every Sunday as we come together, beginning with crowning Christ as our Savior and Lord all over again. So the second thought is this. This passage, I think John wanted to be sure to include to where he would teach us a lesson that he and the other disciples learned that day, and that is to trust in Christ's sufficiency. That's in your notes. Trust in Christ's sufficiency, okay? What is very interesting when you open here, verse 21, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and here is how he showed himself. When you're reading in Matthew 28, verses 10, and also in verse 16, Jesus gave some very explicit instructions. He said, I want you to go back to Galilee, and I want you to go to the mountain." and you will see me there. Go to Galilee, go to the mountain, and you'll see me there. Okay? Now, we don't know for sure what the mountain is. Many people think it's the, it's the Mount of Beatitudes, uh, which is where he, he uh, gave the Sermon on the Mount. Interestingly enough, when you're standing on that particular mount, uh, you can look straight ahead and look right into the Sea of Galilee. You're right at the very north. You look right at the Sea of Galilee. Look a little to your left right here, and there's Capernaum. 
which is a fishing village, a metropolitan really in those days, a fishing village. And then right beyond there, you can see that little chapel, Peter's Primacy. But Jesus said, go to Galilee, go to the mountain, you'll see me there. Okay, we ended up in chapter 20 there in Jerusalem. We go to chapter 21, they're up in Galilee. So some time has taken place. We don't have a time stamp. We don't know exactly how much time has taken place, but some time has taken place. It has to take anywhere from five to seven days to walk by foot from Jerusalem up to Galilee. So we know it's been that period of time. And then they have spent some time waiting on Jesus on the mountain, we would assume. But when we open up the passage here, they're not on the mountain where he told them to be. And so right away we see there is an issue here. We know that Peter was a very uh, prone-to-action individual. Waiting was not something he did well. I think somewhere I'm going to find in my family tree we're related. We don't, he doesn't wait very well. And so I get it in my mind, and this is maybe entirely wrong, and I will be glad to apologize to him when I get to heaven. But in my mind, I get the idea that he, he's been there for a few days, and, well, where is he? Where's Jesus? You know, got things to do, got bills to pay. And so then we see what happened. Simon Peter and these others, here's Simon Peter said in verse 3, I'm going fishing. Now, when you and I say that, we're going for a recreation. We're going to get away to just being quiet here in the boat or wherever it may happen to be. It's recreation. Peter was a professional fisherman. And most all commentators say at this point, what he's saying is, I'm going back to life as I understand it. I'm going back to the world that I know. I, I, I don't know all this dying and resurrecting stuff and, and, and all of these miracles and, and, and standing around waiting for Jesus to show up when everybody... I don't understand all that. I know about fishing. That's my life. I, I, I'm a professional when it comes to that. Well, interestingly enough, in, in this episode, only seven of the 11 disciples are actually there. And these seven are those who are most familiar, either that they've lived right around the Sea of Galilee, or they themselves were professional fishermen as well. And they, so they say, okay. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced what, what Peter was saying was, I'm going back to life as I know it. I'm going back to something that I feel like I have some kind of control over. And there's a lot of reasons I'll be glad to show you later. I'm not going to get into those now. But one way that you can really see, it says, and they went and got into the boat, not a boat, the boat. And it's very interesting because it's rarely you have that kind of sentence structure unless there is something particular in mind. I think they went and got Peter's fishing boat. He went back and got the boat. Let me tell you, that is the boat that he was in one day when, Peter, when, when Jesus stepped into the bow and said, you mind pushing out a little ways from shore to where I can, I can teach and not get thronged by all these people? And then he said, will you go out just a little further and let down your net one more time? The boat! That's the boat that we're talking about. So, here's what happened. He, they, these guys went back to what they understood. They went back to life as they could control it. 
They went back to something that they knew how to do and do it well. They fed their families. As a matter of fact, there's every reason to think that uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, the Zebedee boys, that they were together in a company, a fishing company. So they employed other people. They made a livelihood catching fish. All right? So you get that picture. We're going back to what we understand. And so they went back to what they understand. They fished all night. And that's when you do your fishing most of the time on the Sea of Galilee. You, you fish at night. They fished all night and hadn't caught anything. That's embarrassing. Professional fishermen. Not one, not two, not four, seven professional fishermen, and they had nothing to show for it. Nothing to, they were trusting in their own abilities. They were trusting in that we want to do life the way we can control it. And they came out with nothing. Zero. And that's, as they're, as they're pulling towards the shore, empty nets, nothing, coming towards the shore, the Bible says there's still some 300 cubits out. That's about, about 100 yards. So think football field, okay? They're about a football field out, and there's a man on the shore, wee, 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 over there. And it's interesting what it says. Now, reading right out of my Bible, it says, children, have you any food? Okay? I'll tell you something about that sentence. Children is a... I thought, first of all, this was John's favorite word. He loves that phrase, my little children. First John, if you've ever studied First John, uses it over and over again. The word there is technia, and it's a term of endearment. My, my little children, okay? That's not the word that was here. I was surprised. This is a different word. This word is pidon, and it comes from pies, and this word means child or kid, and it, all, it means kind of someone who is childish or acting like a kid. And so the way the sentence is also organized, it implies the answer is no. Okay? So you, here's, here's the way you can translate it in modern English. Hey, kids, ain't got no fish today, do you? That, that is a legitimate way that you can translate it into modern English. Kids, didn't catch anything last night, did you? Now, there's a mild rebuke here. Jesus is rebuking them very mildly. Why? Because they weren't supposed to be down here fishing. They were supposed to be meeting him up on the mountain. But they decided they were sufficient in and of themselves to know how to run their life. And they went back to what they knew best. And Jesus caught them there. <laughs> I think there was plenty of fish in Galilee. I just think God in all of his wonderment and Jesus just said, Fish, go deep. I'll call you back up later. And so there he is on the shore. And, and then you know, you know what happened. After, at, look at the response. Derek, you did this excellently when you read this. Look at their response. He said, kids didn't mind getting any fish last night, did you? No. 
Any of you have answered that way before? Especially when you know you're caught. <laughs> you know, you're dead to rights right in the middle of having done something. No. Nope, not a thing. And then, now, I want you to please, I know you're supposed to read the Bible solemnly, but I'd like for you to see a little humor here because you're supposed to. Jesus says, kids, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Now, if you don't see the humor in that, you need to think about that a little bit. Here's a man standing 100 yards away on the shore. Obviously, if he knew how to fish, he'd have been out there fishing last night with all the other fishermen. 100 yards on the shore, looking out into the distance and telling them where to find fish. And not just say, hey, throw your nets out a time or two, but put it over here on the right side. Now, do you realize that as a boat sits in the water, there's no wall that goes all the way down to the bottom of the lake to where there's fish on the left but not on the right, or fish on the right and not on the left. How foolish of a landlubber to tell a fisherman where to find fish from 100 yards away as if they were all located in one particular little spot. But what's even more fascinating is that Peter threw the net. That's amazing. I think it was out of frustration. I think it was aggravation. I think it was saying, well, I'll show you where the fish are and where they're not. And just throw, off he went. The fish were right where Jesus told them to be. Come on, boys and girls. Time to come up out of the depths. I need you now. And when they threw the net that time, it was so heavy with huge fish, they couldn't draw it in and nearly capsized the boat. Here's the lesson I want you to know. It's a lesson that these guys understood. John understood it and would never, never miss this again. When I trust in my own sufficiency, I will always fail. When I realize I'm not sufficient to all this life has to throw at me, but you are all sufficient, Lord God. I will trust in you. Even if it seems ludicrous to me, even if it seems counterproductive to me, I dare to believe you are sufficient to meet all my needs needs. Here's the surprise. They are about to get surprised that that's Jesus on the shore, and they're going to be surprised by faith, faith that you can trust Jesus to provide for you when you can't provide for yourself. That thought is trust in his sufficiency. The third thought is this. You need to, tr to trust Jesus obediently. They did what he said. That they when they hadn't obeyed him by being where they were supposed to be up on the mountain, but they obeyed him by throwing the net when and where he told them to. And the difference is, listen, God cannot bless my disobedience, but God will always bless my obedience. Will you hold on to that? Will you write that down and understand that?
God cannot, don't ask him to bless your disobedience. He cannot, he will not. When you take control of your own life and you say, God, I know better than you how things ought to be done. The only person you can trust is yourself. When you say, God, I, I promise you I have no idea how to do what it is you're calling me to do. But I trust your sufficiency and I will obey you. That's when the blessings come. Hold that. Grasp that. You need to grasp that with all your strength. I can't help but think that Peter and the other guys in the boat sure had a lot of excuses at that point. They must have had a lot of reasons. They say, but don't you know we've been fishing all night on the right and the left and the front and the back? We've been all over this lake and we don't have as much as a minner, and you have the gall to tell us? <laughs> I mean, they have every excuse in the world. Listen, God can't bless your excuses either. And you and I have every excuse in the world not to obey Him and do what He tells us to do. God can't bless our excuses, but He'll always bless our obedience. Thought number three, trusting Jesus is always strengthened by fellowship. Uh, we've, we've, we've missed fellowship so much. It's so good to see this many people here today. Uh, and I imagine all of those of you who are watching at home, I, I draw my life's energy from being with God's people in so many different ways. Fellowship is imperative to us. And this has been a hard, hard time. But I want you to see how fellowship is so important here. They're pulling at the, at the net, okay? And you understand this is long, hard work, even at night. Even at night. So fishermen usually strip down to just their loincloth, okay? Just their BBDs, pardon me, okay? They just got on the essentials, all right? The tunics are thrown over around the mast. And so that's the way they are. And they're pulling at the net, and all of a sudden, somebody, it's about time somebody woke up to this deja vu all over again feeling. And John says, hadn't something like this happened once before? Bam, it hit him. And he said, it's the Lord. The light bulb came on. He'd been in that boat before. I mean, that boat before when this had happened. And he turns to Peter. It's the Lord. Now, I want you to know something remarkable. Peter grabbed his tunic, threw it on, and in the water he went. Now, let me, let me pause a minute and say, you may find that surprising. This is the Peter that denied knowing Jesus. This is the Peter that braggadociously said, I'll die right along with you, and then he ended up denying him. That's the Peter. Now you would think, you would think after sinning so grossly against the Lord, that when suddenly he realized there's the Lord on the shore, rather than being the first one in the water, he'd be the last one out of the boat. He wouldn't want to face Jesus with that sin and guilt. Let me tell you why he was the first one out of the boat. <laughs> 
Jesus had already come and appeared to Peter. We don't know a lot about it. But I can tell you what I know in my heart. Jesus had already reconciled with Peter. He had already squared things with Peter about that denial. He'd already squared that to where Peter, with a whole heart, didn't hesitate. I'm going to be where Jesus is. And off he went swimming to the shore. He could do that because his past wasn't haunting him anymore. He'd been with Jesus and that past had been dealt with. And now, as soon as he find out where God is, bam, I'm going to be right where God is. I'm going to be right where Jesus is working. If he's on the shore cooking fish, step aside, I'm going to be right there with you. That's, that's why Peter could jump and go the way he did. Because he knew the value of fellowship with the Lord Jesus. John had, had, had recorded how Jesus had made it so abundantly clear before they ever left the upper room. We've studied it back some months ago. He says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, then you can ask whatever you will and it will be done to you. That abiding, that's fellowship. The imperative of fellowship with Jesus. They understood this is where their strength came from. Finally, I want this thought to settle in your mind. Trusting Jesus is evidenced by allowing your ministry for Him to overflow from His ministry to you. Jesus had prepared breakfast for them. These boys had worked all night long. And He'd prepared breakfast. Here he had, he had a fire going, had coals, had fish already done, had bread already done. Come on, boys, get something to eat. Bring some more than fish. You're going to need more. You're hungry. Come bring, bring a few more. What was Jesus doing? What did Jesus say? He said, I came not to be served, but to be a servant. He said, you want to be the greatest among my followers? You be the greatest servant you know how to be. You be a servant leader, and people will be willing to follow you. And there he is, serving them. And out of his ministry to the disciples, then they had strength to minister to others. Listen, folks, when we come together, whether it's virtually together or actually together, around the Word of God, to pray with one another, to worship, to sing, to give, to minister, when we come to do that, there is a strengthening that happens in our soul and in our spirit that enables us. Jesus fills our cup to where then we can go out in this community and slosh out on others. And what are we going to slosh out on others? We're going to slosh out Jesus. If you've been filled with His ministry of grace, if you've been filled with His strength, if you've been filled with His hope, if you've been filled with His peace, whatever it is He's filled your cup with this morning, that's what you're going to be full of as you go outside these doors. And you know what? This world's going to jostle you as you go. You're going to get pushed around. And when you do, what's going to spill out is what He's just filled you with. That's why every morning you need to get up and you need to get a tank full of Jesus. You need to get your cup full of Jesus. I've got to get my cup full of coffee when I get up. Oh, what? You, you, you really don't want to see me without my first cup of coffee. I had a friend of mine that's very much like that too. 
and, and uh, he usually had his first cup of coffee after he got to work. He happened to be a pastor also. And it had been a long, rough night. It had been rough. And he came in, and he came by his secretary. He said, bring me a cup of coffee and send in the first victim. <laughs> no, but I tell you what, more than a cup of coffee in the morning, I need Jesus to fill my cup. I've got to have those few minutes just alone with him, close the door, open the Word of God, allow him to just fill my cup. When I don't, I have nothing to offer you except me. And that's not sufficient even for me. I know it's not sufficient for you. But when my cup is filled with Jesus, then I have something that everybody desperately needs. So what do we take away from this? These guys were surprised by Jesus. There he was. <laughs> we weren't expecting him. Uh, especially not down here on the lake when we were supposed to be up on the mountain. We weren't expecting him, but he showed up. And he showed up to meet us at our point of our deepest need. To teach us that we're not sufficient in and of ourselves. Only our sufficiency comes from him. But as he meets our need at the most deepest level, we have something to share with others. Where are you right now? What is it Jesus needs to do in your heart right now? It may be that you're hurting and lonely and you have, you have never really come to find the intimacy of knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let me go back where I started this sermon. The very first thought is you need to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you haven't done that, in just a few moments, I'm going to lead you in a prayer to where you can have that opportunity to do that here or at home. But if you're already a believer, it's time when our tanks run empty. There are times when things get so very hard. There are times where we trust our own selves and we fail miserably. Here's the lesson Jesus wants you to know today. Stop trusting yourself. Oh, oh, I want you to do your best. You know, it's interesting. Jesus didn't say, boys, sit down on the boat. Fish, jump in the boat. Come on, jump in the boat. He didn't tell them to do that. Always, 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 His effort combines with our obedience to create His success. There's always something for us to do. We don't just sit back and let Him handle it all, but he, we obey. Remember what Eric Van Pelt taught us here some times ago from that old hymn that we're walking, trust, and obey, trust, and obey, Trust and obey, they go together. And so he's saying, don't trust in yourself alone. Obey me. Trust in me to bless your efforts. And then you'll have your success. Let's go to the Lord. Whatever it is that, he, that you're carrying heavy today, whatever it is that you're struggling with today, Whatever it is that you've been trusting in your own sufficiency and God is offering to you His all-sufficiency, let's talk to Him today. Father God, there are some hearing these words today that have never trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Right now, right now, Lord, I just pray You'll help them to pray along with me to make my words their words and just say, Oh God, I'm a lost sinner. 
in desperate need of a Savior. I dare to believe you died on the cross to take my sins upon yourself. But you rose again that I might have eternal life. I confess my sins to you. As best I know how, I turn away from doing things my way. I ask you to come into my heart. Cleanse me. Forgive me. Be the boss of my life. I give control to you. Father, the moment that prayer is uttered from the depths of any human heart, Holy Spirit, I know you invade that life. You cleanse that heart and you claim that soul. And we want to rejoice to those who have made that decision today, Lord, whether they're here in the sanctuary or at home. Lord, we want to rejoice with them. Others are believers in Christ. But Lord, this world, it's tough, God. It's tough down here. And it's so easy to go into the old way of just trusting our own abilities, our own intellect, our own self. When we do that, we can never succeed spiritually. So, Father, we want to confess our insufficiency and profess your absolute sufficiency. Come into where we are in all our weakness and all our failure and bring your hope and healing. Some of us need your peace. Some of us need your strength. Some of us need boldness. Some of us need patience. Lord, come and meet us where our needs are. And we believe you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Ed's going to lead us in a song in just a moment. And it's an invitation song. A time for you to say yes. If you're at home, you can pray with the Lord. You can call us on the number you see on your screen. Let us know what's going on in your life. Here in the sanctuary where you stand. And if you've asked Christ to come into your heart, come sit on this front row and let Derek and I talk with you in a moment. If you want to join our fellowship, come. If you want to come and just pray at the altar, the altar is open and it belongs to you. Come right away.
good to be together in the Lord's house here this morning. So good to be with you at home as well. Let me thank you first for being here. Thank you, for, if you will, as you make your exits in an orderly way. But if you'll do your fellowshipping out into the parking lot area, we've got to clean our area here, get all ready for the next folks that are coming in. And uh, you enjoy your Bible study time together. God bless you. Thank you. Have a wonderful day.